Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. As we end 2020, a lot of people are out of work. And even those who aren't are looking ahead to a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It's likely that many workers will be looking to education in the year ahead to get new skills or degrees, to switch careers, or just get ahead in the one they're in. And our guest today thinks that that means that colleges and employers will need to rethink the relationship between the workplace and the classroom. That guest is Michelle Weiss, who is currently a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, a philanthropic investment firm. As you'll hear, Weiss is someone who has herself changed careers pretty dramatically. And she's out with a new book called Long Life Learning. She started writing that book before the pandemic. And she was responding to rapid changes in the job market that were already happening due to technology shifts like artificial intelligence and automation. But now she believes the COVID-19 virus and all the disruptions it's caused may accelerate the trends that she was already seeing. In a nutshell, she thinks that we should shift our thinking away from this idea that people go through a long period of education when they're young and then shift to being a worker and no longer need to keep learning. Instead, she says the way to keep up with how employment is going, people will need to find a way to combine working and learning throughout their lives. You may recognize Michelle Weiss's name as a longtime columnist for Ed Surge. And in fact, this book grew out of one of the columns that she wrote for us a couple years ago. So just before the holidays, I connected with Michelle about her argument and what it means for education and employers and really all of us. You were a professor at a at a pretty, you know, well-known university for a while before you switched. What what was it that made you kind of shift gears in your own career? Yeah, I started off as a as an assistant professor, nice tenure track position at Skidmore College in upstate New York and it was everything I was hoping for as a PhD student, um, but I realized I wanted to work with a much more diverse uh, learner population, and that was sort of what was inspiring me to kind of look elsewhere. At the time, I was I at the time that I had gotten my job, it was right at the beginning of the recession, so it wasn't just like a simple move to just go somewhere else to to impact more. Uh, diverse learners. And so I actually decided to leave academia in order to find that uh, sort of different, more non-traditional student population. You ended up working with Clayton Christensen. I did. um, Who is very well known to people um, as the disruptive innovation kind of pioneer. Um, I know he passed away a couple years ago, but he, he did, you worked with him on kind of talking about his theory of disruptive innovation in the education sphere? Yeah, so I luckily got to meet Michael Horn, who co-founded what at the time was Innocite Institute. It then turned into the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Um, he had co-written a book with Clay on K-12 through education and the opportunities for disruption within um, I met him when I was working for an ed tech startup that was ho- helping service members transition out of the military into civilian careers. He was on the board of that uh, startup. And 
reached out when that company had to pivot and told them, you know, like, why don't we try to build out a higher education practice within this think tank? And, and that's how it all got started. And I had the incredible opportunity to write a couple of big pieces with Clayton Christensen. And he sadly uh, passed away uh, way too early in January of this year. Yeah, and I, I we have definitely talked about his his work, so a lot of our listeners um, may know it. But one of the things that I was struck by in what you were interested anyway in in your book is that it sounds like you're really interested in thinking about, as you put it, non consumers of higher ed, um, the people who may not be going into the higher ed as it exists now. Um, what what is it about that group that interests you? Yeah, and it, and it can also include the people who have tried to uh, gain some learning from traditional higher ed, but have not actually make, been able to make it through and out of higher education, which we all know is one of the most difficult tasks uh, when it comes to uh, you know getting the full return on on your investment in higher education. Um, that lens of thinking about non-consumers or people for whom the alternative is nothing at all has always been such a generative and constructive lens for me to look at innovations because I think uh, it's it's really hard when we're entrenched in a specific industry like higher education or workforce training when we look at certain new things that come into the market because we have this sort of sense of what high performance and high quality is from the perspective of the existing solutions in the market, it's really hard for us to look really open-mindedly at these new things that are that are burgeoning on the sides. And so our immediate instinct is to kind of just dismiss it or scorn it or, you know, call it low quality. But for me, the most helpful sort of crux of the theories of, of disruption has just been this idea that as soon as you start to notice this this strange thing that you do want to kind of dismiss, that's actually precisely when you need to take a closer look. And, and it's because when people are non-consumers, when they don't have a great alternative to the existing solutions in the system, they have a very different measure of performance. They're looking at that new shiny thing with um, a different perspective and a different expectation of of quality where it may not be about in-person interaction, but actually convenience and flexibility. So that's that's what's so helpful about uh, these theories. A lot of times there's this critique or pushback against some of the disruptive innovation ideas that, especially in higher education that I hear, that somehow it's, you know, anti-intellectual or there's a something that that it's too geared to the workforce that there's too much of a focus in applying this this kind of oh you know build something um totally new and different and if it's bad at for or you know if it's a little clunky at first it's going to get better but there's also the critique is that somehow in doing that it, it ends up being a commercialized um kind of product-based thing that doesn't conform to sort of the the goals and aspirations of, of higher ed to, to sort of build people fully beyond just a job. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious what your response is to that line of thinking around um, that, that some, you know, back uh, probably your, your former colleagues at your, your university you taught in would, would might think. 
Yeah, I, I think the the critique that often sort of comes up first is you shouldn't be talking about higher education as though it were a business. It's not a business. But in fact, every single higher education institute institution out there does actually have a business model. There are certain value propositions that we are offering and delivering to learners. It's just a different way of framing some of these things. But the 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 hard part for, I think, a lot of folks who may be more on the academic side of an institution to reconcile is that there are revenue streams and there are real kind of um, uh, expectations when it comes to delivering on you know, a research or, um, you know, intimate, uh, small classroom teaching, all of those are actually things that are driven by revenue. And there are resources and priorities and processes that need to come go into action in order to, to build something that, that, that can actually deliver for, for learners. So it's hard, I think, for, for folks to hear it in that way. But I mean, one of the one of the things about this pandemic is that it is really revealing how challenged already the business models of institutions have been, right? Especially tuition-based uh, schools. But the idea that somehow a disruptive innovation is only skilling up folks with technical skills or gearing more folks toward career technical education is a misunderstanding of of what these theories have to offer. Instead, like if you look at some of the most interesting innovations that I try to feature in this book, these aren't simply coding boot camps. And even coding boot camps have realized that it's not just about teaching a specific coding language. It is about building the human skills of the learner, these kinds of workforce competencies around communication, collaboration, critical thinking, as well as some vertical technical expertise in data science or cybersecurity or advanced manufacturing or healthcare. It's, it really, the, the groups that are doing this best are realizing that it's not either or, you're not just doing CTE, you are doing this kind of both and, you're, you're building this, this range of the learner or generalist skills plus uh, a little bit of that technical or technological savvy. Now, you, you talk about this learning ecosystem that you think is a, a better model than what we have today. And it seems like a key to it is that people might have to return to education throughout their careers, not just a, you go to college and then you're done with college and then you're, you get a job and you're, you never go back to a, a kind of a learning mode. Um, why do you think that's the, the need? Yeah, so in right now, our systems are set up as very separate siloed systems. So we have a very separate K-12 system, which is, you know, um, sort of cordoned off from our K-12, or sorry, our higher education system, different from our workforce training system, and they all have trouble speaking to one another. They don't actually speak the same language. And so what that leads to is when any of us just now try to navigate a job change, it is inordinately difficult. It is more challenging always than we ever expect. We don't know exactly who to call, where to go to, what's, you know, who can I trust for the best advice here? Where am I going to go to gain that competitive edge so that I can seem more marketable as I, as I try to vie for different open opportunities? 
it is just way too difficult and way too um, sort of obfuscated where it's not clear how we chart a, chart a path forward. And the idea here is that as we look toward the future, it is clear that we are going to probably have to navigate far more than at least 12 job changes by the time we retire. I mean, that's the number of, of jobs that early baby boomers are, are, are kind of going through by the time they retire. So if we just think about the fact that our work lives are extending, people are staying in the workforce for longer than they ever imagined, that number could go up to 20 or 30 or 40 job changes that we might have to navigate over this. And, you know, as we're thinking about all the all the challenges of technology and how they're going to make that future so much more uncertain and difficult, we have to, we have to look at these sets of systems in a way that is just going to become a whole lot more easily navigable and seamless. We have to start building now ways for this to become a whole lot easier so we can get exactly kind of the right evaluation of who we are today relative to where we want to go what our skills gaps are, who are the providers who are going to give me exactly what I need so I can move along as quickly as possible to the next great opportunity, and how is an employer going to know how to make sense of that work? How are we going to reimagine on-the-job training so that you know this is not happening on top of everything else going on in our lives, and how do we make that hiring process so much more transparent and clear uh, for learners and workers in the future. So it's it's this idea that we need, we need to build a better functioning learning ecosystem that we can constantly return to because today it, it just doesn't seem within the, the realm of possibility for us to fathom going back to college or going back to graduate school to to get what we need. So, you know, the time is now to really start building this this different set, this different way of, of behaving. No, it's so interesting. And I, I think it, it can sound abstract, but I, I like in the book, you talk about some scenarios. And I believe there's a, a sort of sort of a imagined character you, you go through, I think it's Steve is his name, but mm-hmm. he's somebody who is a career needs a career change and then goes through you sort of talk about what that would mean, what your vision that you just painted would mean in the concrete for for a, a human, you know, like a worker. Yeah, no, Steve's um, actually so, a real person. Uh, that oh, circumstance that he's in is very real, but the solution for his future is imagined as a way of thinking about that new ecosystem. Yeah. All right. Tell us about Steve. <laughs> so Steve is 55. He has been an IT support specialist for for many years. He's the sole breadwinner of his family. Uh, he even takes care of his grandson. Um, and what he's realized is his he has some physical just challenges where he's realizing that the work that he's doing right now is not sustainable for the future. And he never got more than his high school degree um, and, and was able to kind of build skills in this IT support specialist role through different work experiences and has has built a great career from from that. Um, but as he thinks about trying to find a more stable career for the future, because he sort of sees the need to work at least another 15 years before he can retire, he's trying to figure out, okay, how in the world am I going to go get a bachelor's degree at this point in time? And it's fascinating because, you know, as we interviewed him, his 
his only pathway that he could envision for himself was to become a school teacher because he loved children. So he figured maybe, maybe that was the avenue he could, he could pursue. But what Steve's story does is it really illuminates how, how just sort of normal and typical this kind of story is. I think all of us have friends who have kind of hit a certain, you know, fork in the road where they realized, you know, what they've been doing may not be something they can continue to do, but they have no way of envisioning a path forward. And so what we do with this scenario with Steve is actually build out what that better functioning ecosystem would look like. And and in that world, if we had our data speaking to one another, if we had our systems better coordinated, if we had these solutions more obvious to learners that they knew existed and were valid and legitimate pathways to pursue, you know, a better functioning learning ecosystem would say, would be able to kind of position Steve to take some assessments, to realize that, you know, he's actually 70% of the way there toward being a systems network analyst or 65% of the way there toward becoming a human resources manager. And here are the gaps that he just needs to fill. And here are the local, you know, community college providers or, you know, on-ramps or alternative education providers that actually produce, you know, that, that, that help you gain these skills. There's also these other kinds of apprenticeship programs in your area. And Steve is kind of connected to someone who can offer him that, that human touch and coach him along the way and understand that there are these things called income share agreements that he may want to look into or deferred tuition uh, assistance programs, things like that. Or here's, here's you know, the, the public benefit system that, that is local to, you know, where he lives. So all of these things are just coming together in a way that is so much more comprehensible and understandable um, to the point where Steve is, all, you know, able to say, okay, maybe I can take, you know, this class from Pluralsight plus this one class at this community college over the next six months and also, you know, leverage this kind of gig work opportunity in my, in my region to make this work. So it's, it's this idea that, you know, as we think about better career navigation, better wraparound supports, better targeted educational pathways, you know, more transparent hiring processes, that these things, that all the solutions and services and organizations that work in these spaces would come together and meet Steve where he is rather than Steve having to navigate this all on his own. Yeah, thanks for that example. And it's great that it starts with a a real life person you encountered and interviewed. So that's, that's really interesting. So I, I wanted to, to push back. We just had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, um, John Warner, who wrote a book that kind of worries about the, the kind of what he sees as a, a drop, a drastic drop in funding for public higher education over the last couple of decades. You know, other people have made, made that case. And, you know, his, his feeling was that, some of this, you know, kind of crisis is, is that the job market is so, un, you know, kind of unforgiving and gig based and, and everything is kind of, you know, there has been this deterioration of like stability that workers might have used to had. Um, and it seems like you're kind of saying that's going to happen. And so you're kind of solving for like how to adjust the education system to that. But is there, what would you say to somebody who sort of argue that actually it would be better to 
kind of shore up and make more, you know, shore up workers' rights and increase and go back to funding public higher education the way we used to instead of try to create this, um, you know, kind of very difficult patchwork that people are already living as you, it sounds like encountered from your interviews where there's just so much uncertainty and um, yes, there's flexibility, but it seems also like incredibly uh, precarious. Yeah. So I want to be clear that I'm not advocating for sort of a move away from traditional higher education toward only, you know, these more alternative or newer providers that are, that are kind of burgeoning on the margins it's really kind of a both and the thing I'm trying to point to when I'm taking a look at traditional higher education is that the for a long time now we have actually known that this idea of a non-traditional learner is kind of a ridiculous notion because actually you know more than 70 percent of our learners have something that makes it difficult to be a more immersed they're not actually in that kind of 18 to 24 year old crowd who can who can live on campus and be immersed in experience in an experience full time you know one in five parents have some one in five students have some sort of parenting responsibility too and so it's it's more just that we've known for quite some time that the learners we are uh, attending to are different and they have different needs and they have a whole set of circumstances that make it so much more difficult to pursue higher education. And we haven't, we haven't fundamentally pivoted our models to, to meet them where they are. And so that's the real opportunity as we think about these non-consumers. These are people who, who just have very different needs and circumstances um, and, and just so many more constraints that, that make that make higher education even more difficult to, to complete in their lives. Um, it is so at the same time, it, the onus cannot only be on higher education. I think when we think about how difficult job seeking is today, all of the burden unfairly rests on the individual to somehow navigate on their own. Higher education is not necessarily always meeting the demands of these kinds of new skills that are in demand in the labor market. And employers and companies, on the other hand, have really retreated fundamentally from investing in their existing workforce. So from my perspective, I think I even use it to name one of the chapters, the blame game. The blame kind hmm. of goes all around on, <laughs> it's not on higher education to solve this on their own. It's not on the job seeker to figure out on his or her own. And it is very much the onus of employers to get back into the business of investing in their incumbent workforce. The, the number of hours that we actually devote to building new skills in our workers is, is just kind of unfathomable. It's, it's gone down to less than 11 hours per year. And it has nothing to do with building new skills. That's all about just compliance training and sexual harassment training we are not building those skills for future jobs. And so the- And you're saying it used to be different. It used to be more- It used to be different. At least in, did more. Yeah, I think Peter Capelli over at Wharton has done some research on this where back in 1979, we used to give it at least two and a half weeks per year. Uh, and we would devote that to building new skills in our in our employees. And then it really dwindled down to like only 11 hours in 1995. And so that was 1995. So we can only imagine kind of how much further that has, that has decreased. And I think 
something like 44% of companies offer zero upskilling opportunities within their organizations. So, you know, this is where I really feel like companies have a real part to play. And, you know, I think everyone made a big deal about that statement that the Business Roundtable came up with last year. But this is the real space that we need to be kind of holding these companies accountable is how are you actually, you know, building building these people for the emerging jobs of the future. I, I remind, remind our listeners what that, that business roundtable statement yeah. was. So the business roundtable in August of two, 2019, they said, investing in our employees, this starts with compensating them fairly and providing them important benefits. It also includes supporting them through training and education that help develop new skills for a rapidly changing world. Hmm. And, mm. you know, I think the, and, and you do see these fascinating new initiatives emerging from places like Amazon and JP Morgan Chase and, you know, Infosys. And it's, it's all very, um, it's grounded in this, in this reality that we have really divested from our, our existing workforce, but the, the one challenge that we have to figure out as we do more of this work of investing in our people is figuring out how to integrate that at the same time as they're earning so that they're not having to forego earning wages in order to upskill. And that's the, that's the hardest piece. That's like the biggest nut to crack, I think, is, is solving for time. We're always, again, putting the onus on the individual and saying, when you go home after you've worked multiple jobs or this full-time job and after you put your kids to bed and after you take care of your, you know, your parent who's, who's ailing, then we need you to skill up, <laughs> right? We haven't figured out how to carve that out of the workday or embed it into the flow of the workday. We haven't figured out how to make clear and more transparent the internal mobility pathways within a company. Nobody knows exactly how they actually move forward and advance. So, so these are real, these are real things that, that, that folks like the business Roundtable, these, you know, this kind of association of companies needs to be, needs to be kind of moving forward on. And one last question, there is this, you know, this, this sense of, you know, whether higher education and whether this system that you've described, this learning ecosystem, where in this do we find kind of the, the training the good citizen the kind of uh, well-rounded liberal arts part of that that i think you and i both experienced in our own educations how what what is the appropriate role for that in any of the things we're talking about does that yeah. fall to the wayside a little bit no not at all i mean i think i i i, I focus on that quite a bit in uh in the book to talk about um as we think about the future of work, a lot, of, a lot of the prognostications about how we remain competitive in that more robot-driven future, machine learning intensive future, is that we have to rely on our uniquely human skills. And those are those skills like collaboration, systems thinking, critical thinking, teamwork, communication. The challenge is that, yes, so many of those skills are cultivated beautifully through a liberal arts education 
experience. But again, as we think about this massive pool of learners or non-consumers, people who are not necessarily going to return to traditional higher education for a liberal arts experience, how are we going to build those skills uh, for more mature learners who realize that they not only need to acquire some new technical skills, but they have to broaden those human skills. So that's where, again, we need to start getting creative about different kinds of simulation environments or short burst training experiences where people can practice and build out those skills. Because the expectation that someone who is 55, like Steve, going back and, you know, pursuing a liberal arts degree, it's just not, it's just, it's a, it's a bridge too far for most people who, especially now in the pandemic, and even before the pandemic, we had 41 million Americans in this, in this bucket of, you know, people just struggling to survive. Um, so, so this is the, the real opportunity. It is incumbent upon the entrepreneurs out there, the educational organizations out there who are trying to build toward that future, thinking, how do we build in these kind of deep learning experiences so that we are broadening those really important human skills and also, but also helping ensure that we know enough about artificial intelligence to make the right kinds of interventions and be able to understand well enough and question the AI that we're dealing with uh, in order to, to make sure that, um, you know, this technology that we're building isn't outstripping our ability to, to manage and control it. So it's, it's really this both and, uh, it is not either, or I'm not, (laughs) I am not of the camp of just sort of, you know, only computer science and engineering skills for the future. It is very much you know, uh, it is this kind of unique balance that we have to figure out and how in the world are we going to incorporate that into the workday so that people can do this while, you know, while earning family sustaining wages. A lot of challenges. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for, for sharing and, um, people should, should check out your book. Thanks for, for bringing us uh, these ideas today. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. This year, 2020, is finally ending. I am ready. Um, and this week on the Ed Surge website, we looked back at podcasts, all of the ones we did this year. And the most popular episode, at least as voted by your listens, was one that my colleague did with an expert on Zoom fatigue. It turns out there really is a thing, Zoom fatigue. And people wanted to know about it. If you wonder what else made the list... Go over to edsurge.com and click on podcasts. You'll see the full list there. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please take a minute to give it a rating. That could be your holiday gift to us. Just click on five stars or or write up uh, why you like it. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Thanks, as always, to our managing editor, Tony Wan. And thank you all for listening. We'll be here every week in 2021. Happy New Year.